Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. Hello, Church of the Rock! We have some people in the room. For those who are joining us online, we've allowed 50 people, so we have some staff and some leaders in the room. We're almost through lockdown. In fact, we have our campuses open, and we want to greet them. We have Nevervale and North End and Bronx Park joining us right now live. And so let's those few people in the room give the campuses a cheer. And then, of course, we want to greet the rest of you, which is most of you, and you're, of course, around the city, across the nation, around the world, and we're so grateful you could be part of this. And, uh, you know, we are just about at Winnipeg South here in Winnipeg. We're just about through the lockdown. A few more weeks, and we're going to be able to open up to some degree. And, you know, lockdown's the funniest thing, isn't it? I mean, you just lose all sense of time. And I found a couple of pictures I thought were pretty funny on this. Check this, this gal up. How long have we been in lockdown? <laughs> <laughs> Look at those two pictures. And then, of course, we have Boris Yeltsin, or not Boris Yeltsin, Boris Johnson, and uh, 2035. A few more months and we've got this beat. We should have listened to Doc Brown from Back to the Future, right? He said this, Marty, whatever happens, don't go to 2020. <laughs> we shouldn't have gone to 2020, but we did it. Good news is we're through 2020 and we're almost out of lockdown. All right, so today what we're going to do is we're almost finished this series called Lessons from Lockdown. We're not talking about our lockdown, we're talking about Paul's lockdown. Four and a half years, probably, something like that in lockdown. Uh, Two years in Caesarea, two years in Rome. He was shipwrecked in Malta in between that. And here's what's interesting about Paul. He writes some of his best material during that four years. And we have, of course, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians. Those are three of his very, very finest books. And there's something you'll notice about uh, about Paul's writing is I'm not going to call him a mystic exactly, but you can see that in those books, he's become quite a bit more heavenly minded. He's talking about the heavenly places. He's pressing in. He says, oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And it's almost like the things of this world have grown strangely dim, like the hymn used to say. And he's become bored with those things because he's not living there anyway. And he didn't waste his lockdown. He pressed in. Imagine at the end of his life, Paul the Apostle saying that I may know him. Boy, if he needs to know him, what does that mean for the rest of us? And what did we do with our lockdown? You know, here's the thing. I don't think Paul wasted it watching Netflix and YouTube. I watched Netflix twice. The whole library. Twice. (laughs) It was 20,000. Practically, that's what it felt like. But what he did was he pressed in and he became this incredibly intuitive spiritual person. And you know, it's interesting because the monastic life is what came out of that. People realized that if they isolated themselves from the world, they became more and spiritually tuned with God. And that's why they have these monasteries and the monks became monks. It's like the story of this guy joins a monastery and of course they, they tell on this, you've got to take a vow of poverty, a vow of celibacy, and a vow of silence. And uh, to make this easy for you, we want to know what you're thinking, so every year we'll let you say two words, so pick them carefully. And so after the first year, he shows up, the head monk, you know, asks him what he has to say. He says, food cold. A year later, he's back in the head monk again. This time he said, bed hard. 
Three years later, he shows up to the head monk. He said, I quit. To which the head monk said, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. (laughs) So what we're going to do is we are going to look at something Paul encourages us to do. And, you know, here's what I want to put, how I want to put it. You know, you've all heard this expression. She's so heavenly minded, she's no earthly good. Have you all heard that? We've all heard that expression. Uh, We've probably accused people of that. I think if Paul was going to say it to us, he'd say it the other way around. We're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. And what I want to do today is look at this verse that's really a prayer that is so extraordinary. You're going to have to listen carefully. There's so much in it. But let's just jump into it because today my message is entitled, The Power is Out of This World. And we're going to look at where our power comes from. It comes from the heavenlies. So this is what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with all might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever amen Do you know what I want to do after I finish reading that? Lie down and have a nap. (laughs) I I look at this, I was like, are you kidding me, Paul? You expect me to do all of these things? I know as we went through that, you could scarcely catch all of that. He talked about faith. He talked about being filled with the Spirit. He talked about being strengthened in the inner man. He talked about God's love. He talked about the fullness of God. He talked about on and on and on and on about all these wonderful things about God and our relationship with Him and how things work. And all I can do, because I'm not going to spend, you know, 16 weeks on this one verse, all I can do is pull one thing out. And the one thing I want to talk about is the power. And he mentioned it quite a few times, even if you didn't notice, he mentioned it. Because the word power is the word dunamis in the Greek, where we get our English word dynamite. And when we think of power, we're talking about dynamic power. We're talking about explosive power. And the word dunamis is translated power, but it's also translated might. It's also translated wonders. It's also translated miracles. And so when you see those words in scripture, you need to know this, that we are talking about the explosive power of God's spirit in the world. And he's telling us here in a couple of instances in this one verse, he's telling us that the power works in us and through us. I don't know how many of you remember an old-time evangelist by the name of R.W. Schombach, Tyler, Texas. And R.W. used to always start his radio broadcast with a quote right out of Paul. And this is what he'd say. He'd say, my speech and my preaching are not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. I love that word power. You can say power or you can say 
power. <laughs> you do see the difference, don't you? I mean, there's power, and then there's power. And when he says it, you know he's talking about the explosive power of God. And one of the things that he wants us, God wants us to do, is live in the explosive power of God. And I remember as a young preacher, I, I should never have done this, because I would listen to R.W. go on about the explosive power of God. And I'd do it sometimes before a Sunday morning service. And then you know what I'd do? I'd show up I was like a, some sort of healing evangelist. And I would be just, ow! And I would be wanting to pray for people and raise the dead. Of course, they didn't come and uh, heal the sick. And I remember one particular Sunday, I called people forward to get prayer for. And there was this one guy came up and he was a rough looking dude. He looked like he was like a gang member or something. And he comes up and I said, what do you need prayer for? He says, my hearing. And I went, okay. And so I prayed for him and I put my hands on his ears and I cursed the spirit of deafness and I cursed, you know, that told him that God was going to heal his hearing and he'd be able to hear. And then I said to him, so how's your hearing? He said, I would, how would I know? It's not till next Wednesday. <laughs> you, you <get> it. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't that? <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're looking at the fact that the power is out of this world. That's where it comes from. And Paul gave us some clues here, and I want to throw them up on the screen. Here's how we're going to uh, delineate this. The first thing is this. If you're going to experience the power of God, you need to be able to comprehend so that you may be able to comprehend, he says, the width and the depth and the height and the, and the breadth and the fullness of God. So the first thing we're going to do is look at, at our ability to comprehend and understand. The second thing is that you may be, be able to be filled with his spirit and strengthened in your inner man. And the third thing is that you may be able to do. And he said exceedingly abundantly above all that you can think or ask. There's a lot there. But we need to start with this thing about comprehending. The scripture says you are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And one of the reasons we don't fully engage in the power of God is that we don't really understand it. We don't really comprehend the access that we have to the power of God from heaven. So we're going to look at that because Paul has given us some real clues, particularly in the book of Ephesians and, and these prison epistles. Because what he did was he understood there was something in the heavenlies, he uses that word heavenlies, that we can reach up and bring to the earth. And so there's two expressions he uses quite a bit in his writings. The first one is this. He refers to the age we live in as this present evil age. And you know, even though Christ has already come, we still live in the present evil age. Would you not agree with that? I think people kind of know and kind of realize that the world is still an evil place. I mean, we have hatred and racism and violence and abuse and human slavery and sickness and disease. And the world is still a very evil place that Paul calls this present evil age. And there's a second expression that he uses several times throughout his writings. And it's called this. It's called the age to come. And he tells us in the book of Hebrews, if indeed he wrote it, might have been someone else because the authorship is not verified. But in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that we can taste of the powers of the age to come. And so what we have, we are living in what's called the present evil age. There's an age to come, which is what it's called, that we can access. And when we look at Jesus, when he walked the earth, it was fascinating because he didn't seem to be bound by the present evil age. Did you notice that? I mean, he didn't, obviously, didn't exhibit any sinfulness, no sickness in himself. He would heal the others. He would do incredible things. I mean, every day, he did not walk within the limitations of the present evil age. He didn't even walk within the limitations of planet Earth. 
He walked on water. He turned water into wine. He cleansed the lepers. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. And it didn't take very long before people started scratching their head and asking him, how exactly do you do that? This thing you do, how do you do that? And see, he told them this after he cast out a demon. He said, if I cast out a demon by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. And so he tells us what the key is. The key was that though he too was living in the present evil age, he was touching or tapping in to the powers of the age to come. Sometimes, more often than not, he referred to it as the kingdom of heaven. And here's the most amazing part of this whole story. He told us to do the same thing. He said, well, when did he do that? It was called the Lord's Prayer. Every single person in this room knows it. You've prayed it. And it says, when you pray, say, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what did he say to access the resources of heaven and bring them to bear on the earth on this present evil age? And so when Paul's talking about this, I'm going to give you a little known theological truth about how this works. How is it that we could access the powers of the age to come? How is it that we bring those powers down to bear on the earth? And if we would comprehend it, see, Paul tells us, he's praying for us. He says, I pray you may be able to understand this. Because if you could understand this, the depth and the width and the breadth and the height, boy, it would change the way you live. And so what we see is we see the day of Pentecost comes. And the day of Pentecost, this is all figures in, so don't lose track of what I'm talking about. The present evil age, the age to come. And we, are, we have this thing on the, on the day of Pentecost. I mean, the disciples were doing okay. It wasn't like they were complete failures. They'd had a few moments, right? But then he tells them, he says, now this is what I want you to do. I want you to go wait in Jerusalem and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Isn't that what he said? You shall receive power. Maybe I better say it right. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So there they are. They're hanging out in the upper room. There's 120 of them. On the day of Pentecost... 50 days after the crucifixion, the Holy Spirit descends on that room and everything changes. History changes in that moment because these disciples are now empowered by the Holy Spirit and they're all speaking with other tongues and they tumble out into the streets and people from all over the world are seeing them and hearing them and listening and they don't know what's going on. And Peter stands up and he declares something. He says, this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel. For in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. He's talking about what Joel had prophesied when the spirit of God was going to come upon us, upon the church. And he says it will happen in the last days. Now I want you to think about this. I'm going to ask you a question. The last days of what? Here's the answer, folks. When he's talking about in the last days, the spirit of God coming in power over his church, he's talking about the last days of the present evil age. I want to show you on the screen. Look it up on the screen. You've got to see it visually to understand it. So let's talk about these two lines. First of all, the bottom blue line is what I'm calling the present evil age. It began with the fall of Adam, and then it goes forward. 
And even though Christ has already come, Paul tells us we are still living in the present evil age. We're still living with the evil that exists out there. He actually refers to Satan still as the God of this world. He talks about the rulers of darkness in this age, the present evil age. And so that's going to go on until the second coming. We are still, even though Christ has already come, the present evil age is not over. But once Jesus returns, we know that this present evil age is no longer going to exist anymore. We're going to go into what is called the age to come. Now, people don't understand the age to come. They're saying, well, is the age to come heaven? No. Are you ready for this? The age to come is, ready? The age to come. (laughs) It's not heaven. The age to come is the next age after this age. And what's going to happen is when Jesus returns, the present evil age is going to fade away. We're going to have no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more disease, no more sorrow, no more war, no more racism. All that's going to end. We're going to live in a thousand year millennial reign with Christ ruling over the world. That's the age to come. But here's what's fascinating about it is that the present evil age goes all the way to the second coming. But at the day of Pentecost, we actually began to press in to the age to come. See, Jesus talked about that. Jesus said this. He said, he said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, surely the kingdom of heaven or the age to come has come upon you. And when he talks about saying your kingdom come, that's what he's talking about. And he, and he used this expression. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say it was here. Or was it? Is the, is the kingdom of heaven here or not yet? And the answer is yes. What is happening is we are pressing into it, he says. So look at it one more time. Just throw it up here again. So we see that the age to come really was initiated, or at least we had an opportunity to begin to taste of the age to come, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. And so here it is. The last days are the overlap between the present evil age and the age to come. And that's why he, he, didn't, he didn't take us out of this world. He left us here. But here's the big secret, the big key in this. You see, the war is not over. The battle's not over against evil. But what happened was Jesus, when he died on the cross, it says he disarmed powers and principalities. In other words, he gave us the access to the powers of the age to come. And if we would comprehend that, if we could begin to figure that out, that that's how that works, that we can begin to start to exhibit the powers of the age to come now, boy, it would change everything, wouldn't it? That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Think of the next day. The next day after the Pentecost moment, we have John and Peter. They're going, it's in John chapter, or Acts chapter 3, verse 1. John and Peter are on their way to the temple, the hour of prayer. And there's a man lying there. He's been there for years. He was born lame from his parent mother's womb, and he's a beggar. Everybody in Jerusalem knows him because he sits at the beautiful gate on the way into the temple. He's been there for years and years and begging, and everybody knows he can't walk, and everybody knows he's lame. And they all know who he is begging for alms every single day. But on this particular day, right after the day of Pentecost, we have John and Peter. They're walking by him. The man reaches out his hand, obviously asking for alms. They looked down at him and they said, silver and gold have we none, but what we have we give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And they grabbed that man's hand and they launched him up onto his feet. 
What was that? They just tapped into the powers of the age to come. And this man began to walk and leap and rejoice. And he was healed from that moment forward. What happened in Jerusalem? Every single person knew him. And now they knew he was healed. And everything changed. And 5,000 people came to Christ in one single day. Do you see how the power of God revolutionized the church? So we actually have a little bit of a story like this. I told you I used to watch these healing evangelists and sometimes I'd come to church and pretend I was one. And sometimes I'd even get results, sometimes not. But I remember this one particular Sunday and we just started praying for people. In fact, half the church had left. Uh, We weren't even very big. We probably only had 120 people in the whole congregation probably, you know, a half or a third of them had already left. And we were still praying for people. And, and uh, there was this guy came up and he wanted us to pray for him because we were praying for legs and hips and knees and ankles and all that stuff. And this guy came up and he said, would you pray for me? And I said, well, what's wrong with you? He says, let me tell you this story. His name was James. He says, here's my story. He says, a few years ago, I was working up north in an underground mine. I tripped over a rock and fell on the ground just as a 14,000-pound earth mover drove over top of me. And it went right over his legs, this thing, and completely crushed one of his legs, completely mangled it. They thought he was going to die. He managed to pull through. Then they said, you, you, you're not going to die, but you'll probably never walk again. And they went and looked at that leg, and they were going to amputate it, and they thought, maybe we can bolt it back together. So his whole leg, and I've seen the x-rays, his whole leg was pins and bolts and, and plates and stuff. And here's, here's the problem after they, he actually healed up okay, but the problem is when you bolt to something was all crushed together, ended up longer than it was before. Remember when you broke your mother's lamp when you were a kid, you knocked it off, it fell on the floor, you went and glued it all back together, but the pieces didn't quite fit right, so it was a bigger lamp than it used to be. Same idea. So, so poor James' leg is now an inch longer than his other leg. Now, let me show you his shoes because he showed them to us. I took a picture of it. There's his shoes. It's a nice pair of Reeboks. And uh, the right shoe, he had to have uh, up a, a whole inch to compensate for the fact that his left leg was a, a, an inch longer because of this surgery and all this repair that was done to him. So anyway, he comes up. He's telling me this story. And I'm thinking... What do we got to lose by praying for this guy? So then I turned to his wife. I was completely kidding. But I turned to his wife and said, well, we're going to pray for him. Do you want him taller or shorter? (laughs) And she says, taller, taller, of course, right? Because I'm thinking, I don't know, what would you do if you were God? You'd heal that leg, right? And he'd be shorter. And anyway, his wife says, taller. So I went, okay, we'll ask God to make you taller. (laughs) And so anyway, I started praying for him. Right there in front of everybody who was watching, his good leg grew out an inch in about three seconds. It just went like that. I had barely started to pray. Nobody was more surprised than I was. And that leg grew out like this. And he started walking around and he said, my leg, he was hobbling at first because he had those stupid shoes on. And he took those shoes off and he said, my legs are the same length. He came to church the next week and uh, he brought the shoes, which I showed you and took the picture of it. And then here he is, and I'm not going to show his face. I've got the picture off. But there he is. He got up on stage and he was showing me his brand new boots with the same size heels. And God had totally and miraculously healed him. 
I'll tell you what, that story went far and wide. Everybody tuned into that story. The next week, we had all these visitors there. We had all these wives bringing their husbands to me, wanted them to be taller. <laughs> we, were, we were praying for people. But it was really remarkable to see how God began to move in our midst. All we did was one simple thing. We stepped out in faith. We said, God, you can do this. Let me just take one more minute on this overlap between this, these, these ages. Because there's a great illustration that I think will really help us. Most of us are probably familiar with our Second World War history. And so on June 6, 1944, who can tell me what that date is? That's D-Day, June 6, 1944. That was the big invasion of Normandy Beach. They came across the English Channel. They had 700 ships. They had 4,000 landing craft. There was 195,700 troops that stormed the beaches of Normandy. It was one of the bloodiest days in all of history. There was British, there was Canadians, there was Americans. Actually, if you watch American movies, there's just Americans there. But, but, but the real life story, the Canadians were right on the front of that whole thing. If you watch the movie Dunkirk or Saving Private Ryan, it's the most horrifying images you'll ever see. The water turned red, body parts everywhere, stinking, rotting flesh, all true. Just this horrible, dreadful day. But they had decided they were going to go all in on this one day. And they were going to put it all on the line. And they stormed the beaches of Normandy. And what happened was that was the turning point in the Second World War. It was that day on June 6, 1944, that Hitler's forces were ultimately defeated. They were mortally or fatally wounded. And of course, the troops had to continue to go and march through. But everything had changed because they had won the battle on the beach of Normandy. The, the Second World War went on for another 11 months. And so the war didn't actually end until May 7th, 1945, which we call VE Day. And, you know, just to give you a framework, here's a picture. So you have D-Day, the storming the beaches in 1944. In 1945, 11 months later, it's VE Day, victory in Europe. We have won the battle. And so the war was over in 1945. 11 months later. Now here's what I want you to, to see in this picture. Is that during this period of time, the outcome had already been decided. We already knew who was going to win, but they couldn't just let up. They had to continue to push forward. They had to continue to keep fighting. But the big difference was they knew the outcome. They were fighting not towards a victory, but from a place of victory. And see, this is exactly what happened on the cross of Christ. We are in the last days of the present evil age, but the outcome has already been decided because Jesus died on the cross and he disarmed the powers and principalities. We know the outcome. We know we're on the winning side. We are fighting from a place of victory. You're getting this? That's how the power of God works. It's a great little story about this. So there was this, this Mennonite church and they were facing off with the Baptist church in the finals for men's softball. And anyone who thinks that Mennonites are pacifists, I've never watched them play baseball, I'm telling you they're not. And so the pastor went to the team captain and he said, you have got to beat the Baptists in the finals. And the captain said, no problem. He says, to help you out, here's $100. Buy bats, buy gloves, buy balls. Whatever you need to win this, you do it. 
So on game day, they defeated the Baptists. They went down handily, and the pastor was so excited. He had won. And he went to the captain, and he said, so where's all the new equipment with the $100 I gave you? He said, Pastor, you said do whatever I need to do to win the game with that money. So I used it to bribe the umpire. <laughs> True story, it was Pastor Aubrey in his last church, actually. <laughs> so the first thing is this, that you may be able to comprehend the plan of getting us his power. But the second thing And I think that's the big part. And the next two will not take as long. But the next part is this, that you may be able to be filled. And the whole key on the day of Pentecost was what? Was that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And it says the Holy Spirit filled the room and they were all filled with his Holy Spirit. And everything changed that day because they were changed from the inside out. Don't miss what Paul says. He talks about us being filled with his might and strengthened in the inner man. And see, here's what happens. If you look in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was around in the Old Testament. And what happened was it said the Holy Spirit came upon them, was never in them. They were never filled with the Holy Spirit. So we, you take Samson. It says the Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. The Holy Spirit came upon Ezekiel and he prophesied. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we find the Holy Spirit dwelling in people. But all that changes in the New Testament. Paul says, know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit no longer dwells in temples made with hands. And the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that we have become the vessels. We have become the resident of the Holy Spirit in us. And that is what changes everything. And that's what empowers us. And so Paul is begging with us. He's saying, you've got to be strengthened in your inner man. You've got to have this inner strength. Because when he says that the power works, it says the power works in you. And it works through us. So yeah, maybe we can figure it out theologically. But how do we get the power in us so it overflows out? And here's one of the big challenges we have. And you know this is true. Paul says, I henceforth know no one after the flesh. You know what he means by by measuring people and judging people based on who they are on the outside? And we all do it all the time. And we look at people who are powerful or rich or successful or big. It's funny how we kind of value people who have done things or are certain things. The the beautiful people, even, even stature has a big factor in this. Do you know that people will elect, typically in democracies, will elect tall people over short people? No offense to you short people, but that's what they do. And do you know that that the dictators are almost always short short because no one will elect them? I'm not insulting them, but look at them. Napoleon, uh, Mussolini, Vladimir Putin. The dictators, you know, they'll just, you know, make themselves the leader. But in a democracy, we unconsciously vote for tall people. It's a a known fact. They've done research on this. Look at the premiers in Canada. I'll just throw it up out of interest's sake. There's Brian Pallister in the middle, our premier. He's six foot eight. If you've ever seen him in person, he's like really seriously one of the biggest people you've ever seen in your life. Look at Stephen McNeil, a former premier of of Nova Scotia. He was six foot seven. Those, the average height of the premiers across Canada is six feet tall. Way taller than the average Canadian. What is with this that we do that? Even Justin Trudeau is 6'2", pretty tall for a snowboarder, I'd say. (laughs) What is with this? 
It's just the way we're wired. We don't measure people by what's on the inside. We measure them by what's on the outside. And the reason I bring this up is because we do it with ourselves. We think, oh, that person's richer than I am, or that person's more successful, or that person is more talented than I am. And none of those things matters. Who you are on the inside that matters. And see, Israel made this big mistake. You will remember their first king was who? King? King Saul. And what was distinctive about King Saul? Do you remember? Tall. Head and shoulders about every man in Israel. And they loved him because he was tall. That's what they do, right? But of course, he was a bad king. So now it was time to choose a new king. So, so the prophet, Samuel, he's being told by God that the next prophet is going to be one of Jesse's sons. So he goes to Jesse and he says, bring out your sons. One of your sons is going to be king. How good a deal is that if you're Jesse, right? One of my sons is, well, you know, they're shepherds. One of my sons is going to be a, the king. So he brings out six of his seven sons. Doesn't even bring David. And he brings out the first one, which is Iliad. And Eliab, we know this, we know he's tall, he's buff, he's good looking. And Samuel makes the same mistake we do, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before you. And the Lord says, I have rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance and the height of his stature. You know, I totally am relating to Eliab getting rejected because he's buff. I mean, that's not even fair. I mean, you know, I would have that same problem, wouldn't I? Right? I mean, I don't look like much on the outside. But underneath this shirt, I have a Dwayne the Rock Johnson underneath. Well, I can prove it to you. I got the picture to prove it. Right there. I even got the same. And just for fun, I got the same tattoos so I'd look just like him. There's a big difference between Dwayne the Rock Johnson and Dwayne, the Jelly Donut Masters. <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> he said, I could tell that joke. <laughs> he doesn't mind. He's happy, I told it. You get my point here. Is that what we do is we measure people what they're on the outside, like I just did with Pastor Dwayne. And that's not what the scripture is talking about. He says you need to be strengthened in the inner man. So all of the sons are rejected. Eliab's rejected. All the rest of them are rejected. Samuel says, do you have another one? He says, well, I got, I got little Bo Peep off with the sheep. He's got little David, little ready David. And, and so he comes, and why does he say, he says, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David gets chosen to be the king because of who he was on the inside. And he was a man who understood. He was a man after God, God's own heart. He was a man who understood his spirit. And it's funny to me that it was this little scrawny David who was able to go into battle against a nine foot six inch Goliath and defeat him had nothing to do with his outside appearance and everything to do with the inward spirit and who he was. And if we could get a hold of this, if we would stop... See, I'm talking about us judging ourselves. If we could stop judging ourselves by who we are on the outside and begin to do what Paul says, that we would be filled with his spirit and be able to comprehend that we are strong in our inner man, everything would change, I'm telling you. One of the things we, we did raising our kids was we really drilled this into to them because you know what kids are like in the play, playground, right? I mean, they say stuff like this. My dad's bigger than your dad. My dad could beat up your dad. 
My grandmother could beat up your grandmother. Your grandmother wears army boots. You know, we have all these stupid things you say in there. And, and it's funny because right from the very childhood, we start to measure people from the outside, from the exter- externals. So one of the things we did with our kids was we really worked hard at trying to convince them that what really mattered as to who they were was who they were on the inside. And we talked to them a lot about inner strength and drawing that inner strength. And, and we put them into sports where it's all about physical stuff on the outside. And we always told them this, you know, you're going to lose probably as many times as you're going to win. And you need to be a humble winner and a gracious loser. And you will learn as much from losing as you do from winning. And I remember my, my daughter, Danica, who's up here tonight, she was, uh, she was in her finals basketball, I think it was provincial, might not have been finals, semifinals, it doesn't matter. And they were in this game, girls basketball, nothing quite like it. And uh, they wanted to win this game against their arch rivals, and they ended up losing. And I couldn't help but laughing because when these girls lost, they all started crying. I thought, I don't think I understand girls. They cry when they're happy. They cry when they're sad. They're all crying. I've seen them win and cry. And so here they had lost. They were crying, and they were going, going through the line, congratulating their opponents. <laughs> They're crying, and I'm sitting in the stands laughing because I'm a jerk parent. And uh, they're going through, and my daughter, Danica, is right at the very end. And she's going through the line, high-fiving people and shaking people's hands or opponents and saying, hey, you played a great game, good three-pointer. And she's going on like, and one of the parents saw her and zeroed in on her and went, Danica, what is wrong with you? You should not be smiling and laughing. Look at your teammates. They're crying. You should be crying with them. She said, well, I would like to, but my parents told me not to get my self-image based on whether I won or lost. (laughs) I thought, that's my girl. (laughs) And you know what? That's what it's all about. It's about being filled with the Spirit so that we would be strengthened in the inner man. And then if we'll do these two things, the first one being comprehend the width and the depth and the length and the breadth and being filled in the Spirit and strengthened in our man, then and only then will we be able to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all you can think or ask according to the power that works in you. And so I think that's self-explanatory, but let me finish with one story. So quite a few years ago, uh, as I was experimenting with being the healing evangelist pastor, there was a group in our city called the Christian Medical Association. It was a group of, of uh, doctors and nurses. They were all Christians. They would get together once every few months and have this event. And they decided to invite me to come to talk to them. Imagine this, surgeons and doctors and nurses, about divine healing. And I'll tell you what, I was pretty intimidated by this whole thing, but I went. And uh, so I'm there standing in front of them talking about the origin of sickness and how divine healing works. I was just making a mess of it, I'll be honest with you. And I know you think, most of you think I'm a real doctor. I'm not. I just play one on television. And I'm a pretend doctor. And I turned out I really didn't know what I was talking about. And, uh, and so anyway, one of the guys came to my rescue because they were asking me questions. I wasn't doing that great a job. And I wasn't convincing them. Many of them were evangelicals that believed God could heal, but not that he would heal. And one of the doctors came to my rescue. His name was Dr. Dirksen. And he was a very eminent uh, orthopedic surgeon in Winnipeg. He had been in the mission field many years. And he stood up and he said, let me tell you a little story. And he talked about being on the mission field. And he said, I saw many, many miracles on the mission field of miraculous healing because these people were so desperate 
and they had no other alternative but to believe God. And they says, but I saw one here in Winnipeg, and it was the greatest miracle I've ever seen. And let me tell you the story. And he was at the Health Science Center, and he had to, there was a, a gal that had come from the north, and she had di- diabetes and got an infected foot and leg. It had now become gangrenous, and he got involved as an orthopedic surgeon because he had to come in and amputate the leg. And so he went and examined her, and he pulled back the, the, the gauze and stuff, and there was this black gangrenous leg all swollen up, and he took his knife and he put six incisions in it to drain the fluid, and he said, tomorrow we'll have to take her into the OR and we're going to have to amputate that leg. While he was doing this, he noticed there was another woman who turned out to be her sister, kneeling at the bedside, not saying a word, just her hands folded like this, literally kneeling there, praying for her sister. The next day, they wheeled her into the OR. He went in and he had bandaged it the day before to drain it. He took off the bandages, but as he took off the bandages, the black, gangrenous, dead skin came with the bandages. And underneath the bandages was perfectly formed, brand new skin. And the most amazing part to him was that the six incisions were still where he had put them, all healed over. They released her from the hospital that very day. And he said, I don't know how this happened. And then, of course, the woman lifted her head up and said, I do. My sister was at the foot of my bed for three days praying for a miracle, and God has given us the miracle. That is wonder-working power. That is the dunamis that I'm talking about. How do we get that? How do we get the explosive power of God? Well, the scripture tells us we comprehend the breadth and the width and the depth and the height of God's goodness. We get filled with the Spirit so we become strengthened in our inner man so we're so convinced of who we are on the inside and we tap into the powers of the age to come because God's power is out of this world. Amen. Amen. We're going to do two things today. First of all, I want to speak to all you who are watching online and uh, if you are... Listening to the sound of my voice, and you've never made that decision to be a follower of Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And uh, on your screen, there'll be a little hand pop up like this, and all you do is you click that hand, and by doing that, you're saying, I want to make that decision today, because everything I've shared today is predicated on that personal relationship with Christ. So if you've never done that before, I'd want to encourage you to do that, and then we're going to pray. And then I want to pray with the rest of you, once we've finished praying for them, we're going to keep that prayer going. And we're going to pray for this wonder-working power, this dunamis, explosive, dynamite power of God to come and become resident in you. So if you clicked and said, you know, you're raising your hand, making that decision today, why don't you pray with me? And in fact, we're all going to pray together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. And though I was a sinner, walking in my own way, You died for my sin. You rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I'm a Christian. And I thank you, Lord, that I can be filled with your spirit. That I can tap into the powers of the age to come. That you will send your spirit upon me and cause me to be strengthened 
in my inner man that I may be able to do above and beyond all that I can think or ask according to the power that works within me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now what we need to do, now that we've said that prayer and we've said amen, and I know we, we've got masks on and we can't go around and lay hands on people. Guess what? You don't have to lay hands on people to pray for miracles. You don't have to lay hands on people for them to be healed. Understand that that power is resonant within you and we can tap into the powers of the age to come. So let's go make a difference in our homes, in our families, in our communities, in Jesus' name. So God bless you. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.